Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. In a period when, if I'm honest, I was trying to avoid what God was telling me to get on and do. And it used to be, eagles may soar, but ferrets don't get sucked through jet engines. (laughs) Now, it's true, they don't. When have you seen a ferret get sucked through a jet engine? Yet just the other day, an aircraft in America got brought down by a bird strike. You know, it stands to reason. But what I will tell you is this. When God puts a call on your life to be an eagle, it isn't comfortable being a ferret for very long. Just bear that in mind. Anyway, I recently read an article, and it was about an American pastor who encountered some unbelievers. And it happened while he was having breakfast one day. And this is how he tells the story. My wife and I were vacationing in Colorado and had breakfast in a coffee shop. It was empty except for four men at another table. One of them was mocking Christianity. In particular, the resurrection of Christ. He went on and on about what stupid teaching it was. And I could feel the Lord asking me, are you going to let this go unchallenged? However, I was thinking, I don't even know these guys. He's a lot bigger than me. And he's got on cowboy boots and he looks quite tough. I was agitated and frightened about doing anything. But I knew I had to stand up for Jesus. Finally, I told Susan, that's his wife, to pray. I took my last drink of water and went over and challenged him. With what was probably a squeaky voice, I said... I've been listening to you and you don't know what you're talking about. I then did the best I could to give him a flying rundown on the proofs of the resurrection. He was speechless and I felt half dead. I must have shaken for an hour after that, but I had to take a stand. We can't remain anonymous in our faith forever. God has a way of flushing us out of our quiet little places and when he does, we must be ready to speak for him. Now I admire that pastor's courage and his determination to be a witness regardless of how difficult it actually was for him because a lot of Christians would have just actually sat there in fear and fumed quietly inside about the terrible things that was being said about their faith. But now, I have a benefit because I can look back in hindsight at the situation that he found himself in. And I wonder if there wasn't perhaps 
another possible approach that might have been more positive in its outcome. Perhaps had more impact rather than rattling off a list of rational arguments for the resurrection. It seems to me that he missed the most important and impressive proof of the resurrection. That was his own life. I wonder if it might not have been more effective if he'd walked over to the table that the men were at and said something like this. You know, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation and I found it very interesting. If you don't mind, I'd like to pay for your breakfast. And the reason I want to do that is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's what's changed my life, because he lives in me. And he, I want to communicate to you the tremendous love that he has for you. Rational arguments don't change people. But changed lives do. Changed lives change the lives of others. And in doing that, they gradually change the world. That's how we challenge unbelief in what is a sceptical world. In Romans 1.20, the Apostle Paul gives us what is probably one of the most profound analyses of unbelief that's been written. He says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. He then goes on in verse 25 to say about the same group of people, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than a creator who is forever praised. Today we encounter unbelief just like Paul did in many different forms. And it doesn't matter what form it's in. Whether it's liberal Christianity, those who start to deny the core truths of what we believe, or whether it's agnosticism, or atheism, or some other man-made religion in all their various forms. What we can say of each of them is that they are all unrighteous attempts to suppress the truth about God. But the truth is, the truth about God will never be suppressed. I don't know whether, as a child, you ever played in ditches. Did any of you ever do that? I don't know, have you ever tried to stop up a natural spring or dam a little stream? It it seems to me that it doesn't matter how many rocks and how much mud you pack in, somehow it just bursts out. It finds a way through or around whatever you put in the way. It's an irresistible power. The level of the water just rises and rises irresistibly and relentlessly until it frees itself from every attempt to hold it back. 
And the same is true about the truth of God. Paul says that it is impossible to block off God's truth. It's impossible to block off God's truth about himself in our hearts. It takes a lot of work to be an agnostic and even more to be an atheist. People come up with all sorts of clever reasons why the universe can't have been created. But actually, which is easier to believe? That something, someone created it or that it spontaneously, by no one's influence, came from nothing. I know which I find easier to believe. There is evidence for God everywhere. But the greatest tragedy of people who live in unbelief is that they are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And they're then attempting to live by that lie independently from the very God that made us. And in so doing, they make themselves poorer. What they do is they bring psychological problems into their lives, family problems into their homes, social and political problems into our nation. Because things start to fall apart all around them. The playwright Tom Stoppard once said, Atheism is a crutch for those who cannot bear the reality of God. It's a good one, isn't it? Many people say Christianity is a crutch. But he said, Atheism is a crutch for those who cannot bear the reality of God. Christians are often accused of being simple-minded people. Ones who need a crutch in life. And in a sense we do. Because we recognise that we are not self-sufficient. And that we know in our own strength we can't walk through this life with all its troubles and dangers without someone to help us. But what kind of crutch is atheism? Because when trouble comes... There's no one. There's nothing. Nothing at all to lean on. It was once said, the atheist can't find God for the same reason a mouse cannot find a cat and a thief cannot find a policeman. In case you don't understand that one, it's probably they're not looking. C.S. Lewis said, Atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Because it's disappointing, isn't it? To find out that everything has no meaning at all. In previous weeks, I've made some comments about the joylessness, the powerlessness and the ineffective state of some parts of a church today. Because having looked at what happened to Isaiah as we read that passage in Isaiah 6, we have to say that by and large, the church today has the appearance of being a non-profit organisation. It does not come through clearly with a prophetic voice. It's swamped in unbelief, just as much as the people Paul was speaking about 
when we read those verses earlier. We have to realise, therefore, just once and for all, that if we're going to see God's power break through in our nation, it will not come from any human initiative. Someone having a good idea about how to do church differently won't, in the end, resurrect a dead or a dying church. What we need more than anything else to bring our churches back to life is God's sovereign initiative. And if we look back at the passage we've been looking at in Isaiah 6, it was God who set about getting hold of Isaiah. Here he was, a priest in the temple, going about his same day-by-day religious routines and carrying out his responsibilities. And then God transformed him into a prophet. God chose to meet with him. And Isaiah responded. I think such an encounter for our churches today is our only hope. Now, Tozer pointed out that prophets are, by necessity, appointed by God. He said this, I cannot recall in all of my reading a single incident of a prophet who applied for the job. God chose them. And I have to admit, in all my reading of scripture, I can't find one either. No true prophet of God has ever compiled a CV and sent it in for consideration at the divine headquarters. No one has asked to be considered for that role. Like Isaiah, prophets are headhunted by God. They don't volunteer. They're arrested. God takes hold of them. He wants people who have been gripped and transfixed by his glory so that he can commission them for his works of service. We can't appoint prophets. They're not appointed by us. They're selected by the hand of God. And he has direct dealings with them. And when you look at Isaiah's 60 years of astonishing, world-shaking ministry, that to be honest is still rattling cages today, only that sort of calling could explain it. Because long after his time on earth ended, Isaiah the prophet is still speaking today. Why? Because God was behind the call to his prophetic ministry. You know, that call can't be safely refused. Men like Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, all attempted to turn down that job. God singled them out to be prophets, and each of them in turn tried to avoid it. In Jeremiah's case, God reminded him that he'd been chosen and consecrated for the role of a prophet since he was in his mother's womb. You'll find that in Jeremiah 1 verses 1 to 5. God sometimes starts working very early in our lives, way back in our past. 
And we might take a time to wake up to what's going on. But God chases us and he gives us hints of his desire and his willingness to take hold of us and use us. And I'll tell you what, we can't stay on the run indefinitely. I know God started to talk to me about church planting when I was 18. And there's only a certain amount of time you can avoid it. I got away with a few years. But God knows what's going on, even if we don't. God knows all along what he has in mind for us. Jeremiah tried to hand in his resignation the moment he heard the call of God on his life. But God just wouldn't accept it. The job of being one of God's servants, and particularly a prophet, is for life. You can't quit. You can't resign. You can't take early retirement. And there isn't much of a pension scheme. Underneath all this, the biggest need for our nation is for thousands of men and women in our generations to encounter God in the way that Isaiah did. To be totally overwhelmed with God's glory. I think that is the only thing that will result in the kind of church that we long to see. Only this will bring the kind of joy, the kind of lasting happiness and peace that the world craves for, but is unable to fulfil. That real joy, the God kind, the kind that doesn't come in a bottle and can't be swallowed as a pill. It can't be injected, and you can't find it by going on the latest thrill machine at Alton Towers. It's the type of joy that is only found in the presence of God. That type of encounter with God lets us see him as he really is. It lets us have a true and accurate picture of our Father and to understand and appreciate his ways. Because everything that's wrong in our world has come about because of the absence of God's truth. That's why everything is degraded. It's why we get so many wrong ideas. Particularly wrong ideas about God. After the Moors murders in the 1960s, which were up here in the north of England... It was revealed that Ian Brady, who was the mastermind behind the killings, had spent years reading books like Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he'd come to a point where he believed in the pointlessness of life. And what he'd started to do was to embrace the darkest expressions of atheism. He read the work of a number of philosophers and he arrived at the conclusion that if no God existed and there were therefore no eternal consequences to his actions, he was free to use whatever sadistic pleasure he wanted in life, even when it was at the expense of other people. We live in times 
where idolatry has never been more prevalent. People just make up their own ideas about God and what he's like and then lull themselves into a false sense of security expecting God to accommodate their expectations of how he should behave. I think that's dangerous. How dangerous is it to have wrong ideas about God? How presumptuous on our part. Yet we've all heard it. Have you heard people say, oh my God wouldn't do that? Oh, the kind of God I believe in doesn't act like that. I mean, it begs the question, well then, who is interested in the kind of God that they believe in and what he's like? What I want to know is what the real God is like and what he has to say about himself. And what he has to say to us in our darkness. We need to line up with the reality of what God is like. Because he will not line up with our reduced and limited ideas. That is for certain. Tozer said, the idolater simply imagines things about God and then acts as if they were true. He goes on and he adds, the God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome. If indeed he's not actually inferior to him in that he is weak and helpless where at least they had some power. What an indictment on the church. I'll read it again. The God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome. If indeed he's not actually inferior to them in that he is weak and helpless while they at least had some power. And this is the God that many Christians serve today. Because they've not had the devastating, terrifying encounter with him that Isaiah had. So their vision and their understanding of God is extremely limited. Now we need to get rid of those limited concepts of God if we, as a church, are going to become a force to be reckoned with here in Doncaster and the wider church across the earth. We need to see afresh what God is really like. It's vital that we see him as he is. Not as we'd prefer him to be. Not as we'd like him to be. remember a day. Well, when will tell you about it. She reminds me from time to time. I was at a leaders meeting. That's all I was doing. I was at a leaders meeting in a church building. We'd had a session in the morning. We'd looked at some issues. And there was a coffee break. And as I stood up, Dave Devonish turned pointed at me and prophesied something and I literally flew back over three rows of chairs which I cannot explain but 
I know I found myself a few moments later sprawled over chairs three rows further back than I'd started off. Such is the power of our God when he wants to make an impact on your life. And I'll tell you what. Isaiah's nice, predictable world serving in the temple started to fall apart. In that opening verse of Isaiah 6, we see two quite amazing things, two facts that are revealed to us, and they're put right next to each other, in juxtaposition. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Here, Isaiah is telling us about two significant events. A death in the palace and a vision in the temple. The passing of the king is noted. King Uzziah's reign has ended because he's died. But the presence of another infinitely greater monarch is also noted. The Lord Almighty is and always has been seated on his throne. For Isaiah, the death of this earthly king meant a superficial peace that had been in place ended that day in his nation. But then he saw God on the throne and the true purpose began in his life from that day onwards. Isaiah's world fell apart just for a moment in time. But then his life suddenly came together. And I'll tell you what, something is similar is happening to hundreds of thousands of people the world over. The little world that they've come to know and have built their lives on comes crashing down. For some it might have been the Twin Towers disaster or the London bombings. It might have been the freak hurricanes over the past few years and devastating floods. It may have been the financial crisis we're seeing at the moment. But whatever it was, countless lives will never be the same again. If only those lives could be put back together because after that event they saw the Lord. As believers we actually have to experience a similar falling apart to that of Isaiah. If our lives are to have the kind of outcome that God desires for us. Isaiah's experience needs to be duplicated in our life. Our predictable world has to fall apart before it can come together again under God's hand. From the archaeological and historical records, we know that King Uzziah died somewhere around 740 BC. His reign had reminded Israel 
of the heyday of the reigns of King David and King Solomon. Because he remained in power for quite a long time. 52 years. I mean, compare that. Elizabeth II, our current monarch, has been in power for just over 55 years. And so, you know, we have some idea of the blessings that a long, stable reign can bring a nation. And Isaiah's reign brought tremendous stability for Israel. And it brought them a lot of prosperity as well. Trade alliances had been made with surrounding nations and there was a large amount of exchange of goods across the national borders. And that was unprecedented in their history. Israel's economy was booming. Trade was soaring. The commercial prospects and forecasts were optimistic. On the surface, it seemed everything was peaceful and idyllic. But in reality, the truth behind the facade was something far more ominous. Danger was looming in the Middle East. And that's why the king's death meant that the world as Isaiah knew it was about to fall apart. Assyria was a fearsome opponent. It was a nation known for ruthless militarism and it was ambitious for power and world conquest. And that was a big looming threat on their borders. Ever since the Reformation, God has blessed countries where the gospel and the word of God have been embraced. What he's done is he's given them order, he's given them peace, and he's given them stability. And we've been blessed with unprecedented economic prosperity. We've been blessed with beneficial scientific discoveries. We've been blessed with prolonged lives, better health, and better safety and security for the nation. In short, we've been well favoured by God. But recent events have taught us that we really live in a very troubled world. It's in jeopardy. And it's quite different to the one that appears on the surface. Underneath our prosperous facade, there's turmoil, unrest, and even the threat of terror. Even the Western world today is aware that what seems normally reliable is no longer so predictable. It doesn't matter whether we apply it to national security, to our jobs, to our pensions or to our relationships. All of our long-term future is suddenly up for grabs. And it was in Isaiah's day too. So our security can't rest on what world leaders and politicians are saying. The good news is, though, it never did. Isaiah may be dead, but the living God is still very much alive. And although Isaiah accomplished many remarkable things during that lengthy reign as king, his heart drifted away from God. 
The biblical account of his activities tells us that he fortified Jerusalem. He implemented a massive defence budget to equip a large army. He developed a booming economy through investment in agriculture and international trade. And as a result, there was great prosperity. But rather than glorifying God for his goodness to the people, Uzziah became puffed up with pride over what he'd achieved politically. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 21. This is what it says. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests, followed him in. They confronted him and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, for the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated, consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honoured by the Lord God. It's quite a warning. But it goes on. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave, because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. What had happened? What had happened? A kind of religious arrogance had gripped him. It's the same type of arrogance that's deceived so many others right up to the present day. But he decided he was going to try and play God by boldly trying to mix the role of priest and king without having that permission from God. He attempted to enter the temple and burn incense directly before the very presence of God without using one of the authorised mediators the priesthood that God had set in place in the temple what arrogance and as a result God struck him with the fact of his own mortality and he broke out in leprosy in those days People suffering from leprosy were segregated from the rest of society. And so suddenly Uzziah found that all his former allies and friends and associates 
instantly deserted him. And he was left to live in total isolation until he eventually died a frightened, lonely man. The nation that had been so prosperous sank into fear and panic. And don't forget, right on their eastern border was the threat of this Assyrian king, a cruel, militant warrior dictator who'd set his eyes on possessing the land of Israel. Not much changes over the ages. We live in a world that is so similar to Isaiah's. World leaders display incredible arrogance and presumption. They flout God's holiness. Unbelief abounds just as it did in Paul's day. Yet in the midst of all this turmoil, the almighty God speaks. He steps forward to reveal himself to his people and to remind them, I'm still on the throne. I'm still on the throne. Isaiah was the one who was chosen. He was chosen to see the Lord and to become God's mouthpiece to the nation. Isaiah, a man who lived to honour God's holiness as a priest in the temple, but nevertheless needed a touch from God. In his encounter with the Lord, he became cleansed. He confessed to God, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel of the Lord touched those lips and cleansed them. You know what the world needs most at this time? At a time when people are becoming increasingly disillusioned with media spin, with political leaders who lack integrity, is to see a, ch a church that's been cleansed of its decay, to see a church that's been awakened from its insolence, a church that stopped playing games with the things of God. To see a church that has recovered from its backsliding and is so utterly overwhelmed and stunned with God that it's capable of overwhelming and stunning the world with God. I want to pose you a question today. How expectant are you that God wants to meet you in that sort of way? We need to seek God afresh. We need to expect that he will give us a new glimpse of his greatness and his power. From the point that happened to Isaiah, nothing was ever the same again. He saw the world from a different perspective. Instead of from his own, he saw it with God's eyes. And God wants that to happen to me 
and to you as well. You know, it can happen. I think it must happen. And when it does, we'll be on the road to success. Not success as man defines it, but success as God defines it. How expectant are you that God wants to meet with you in that sort of way? Shall we stand? I just want you to take a moment just to quietly reflect on that question. As Isaiah walked into the temple, walked into the very presence of the Lord Almighty, that's the place you can go. If you have the humbleness and the desire before God. But your life will never be the same. Are you prepared to pay that cost? That your ambition will change. That your desires will change. That you'll no longer be motivated by the things of this world but you'll be motivated by the desires of God if so just quietly reach out to him now because he will start that process today We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 